bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, August 28, 2012. You're currently listening to our 250th Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. I began posting this podcast back in 2007 as a way to keep the tax credit community informed of the latest tax credit news, as well as my insights on the developments of the week. Since then, we've recorded and published more than 75 hours of free content on the low-income housing tax credit, new markets tax credit, historic tax credit, and renewable energy tax credits, not to mention weekly updates on the latest in Congress and other developments from Washington, D.C. As we celebrate this milestone, we're quite mindful of the need to keep this podcast useful to you, the listener. So I encourage you to send your feedback to me directly at michael.novogradic at novoco.com. I begin this week's podcast with a discussion of the impending fiscal cliff and an update on the implementation of the Volcker Rule. Then, in the Long Housing Tax Credit section of this week's podcast, I'll examine the findings of a report released by HUD that analyze what happens to low-income housing tax credit properties when they reach year 15. In our new market tax credit segment, I'll review the upcoming deadlines for the current allocation application round. Next, I'll alert listeners to the next meeting of the CDFI Funds Advisory Board. Then, I discuss the OCC's latest newsletter, which focuses on using new markets tax credit to finance healthy food initiatives. In this week's renewable energy discussion, I'll discuss the findings of a report about the jobs created by renewable energy. I'll also share the announcement of a meeting the Department of Energy will hold next month to discuss hydropower's ability to integrate fluctuating renewable energy resources, such as wind and solar, into the nation's grid. And finally, in this week's Historic Tax Credit segment, we have breaking news on the Historic Boardwalk Hall case. The appeals court ruling is out and tax advisors throughout the land are reading it and trying to assess its impact on historic tax credit transactions as well as on new market tax credit, long housing tax credit, and renewable energy tax credit structures. I'll also remind listeners that it's not too late to join Novogratz and Company and the historic preservation community in Louisville, Kentucky next week for our historic tax credit conference. The historic boardwalk case will certainly be a hot topic at the conference. Right now, we have over 175 registered attendees for the conference. So if you're ready, let's get started. In general news, we start by noting that even though Congress is away for its summer state and district work period, reports last week indicated that Senator Kent Conrad is working with a bipartisan group of seven other senators on a plan to avoid the so-called fiscal cliff. As regular listeners will recall, Congress faces a series of compounding fiscal deadlines beginning October 1st and growing more serious as the end of the year approaches. Senator Conrad, who is chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, 
reportedly said that the bipartisan group is using the Simpson-Bowles Fiscal Commission plan as its framework, and that they've agreed that the deficit should be reduced by at least $4 trillion over the next 10 years. For the time being, however, most lawmakers remain in their home states and districts and aren't scheduled to return to Washington, D.C. until after Labor Day. That's obviously also after the Republican and in the Democratic conventions. Turning quickly to the Volcker Rule, Reuters reported last week that regulators are planning to release a final version of the Volcker Rule by the end of the year. The report quotes an unnamed Treasury official who said that banks will be expected to begin complying with parts of the rule after it is released. Technically, the Volcker Rule went into effect last month. However, it's been unclear exactly when banks need to comply with certain of its provisions. Reuters reports that the group of regulators is grappling with differences about how to implement the rule. In addition, it's taken some time to sort through the 18,000 comments that they received. Some of those comments are actually longer than the proposal itself, which wasn't short by any means. Reuters reports that the official said something will get done this year. And that's because regulators want to provide clarity to the market. And then once the rule is in place, there is a deadline of July 21, 2014, to fully comply. In low-income housing tax credit news, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development has released a report on the fate of affordable housing developments built with low-income housing tax credits. The report is entitled, What Happens to Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Properties at Year 15 and Beyond? The report examines what happens to low-income housing tax credits after the compliance period expires. Analysis focused on properties where the low-income housing tax credit compliance period had expired. This means it focused on properties placed in service from 1987 through 1994. This subset of properties accounts for about 400,000 of the 2.2 million units developed through the program since it was created back in 1986. Analysts interviewed developers, syndicators, property sales brokers, and housing finance agency staff. They also talked with industry experts as well as reviewing HUD's property databases. The study finds that the vast majority of the low-income housing tax credit properties remain affordable after the end of year 15. The report also finds, though, that the majority of low-income housing tax credit properties are actually not in danger of becoming unaffordable. Specifically, researchers found that of the nearly 11,300 properties in the study, about 3,700, or 32%, were actually no longer monitored by HFAs, and they could be charging higher rents. The vast majority of the properties, however, were still affordable, or at least they could be measured as still affordable, and it was unclear with respect to the 3,700 not being monitored. And of 100 properties that actually had 20 or more units that were located in low-poverty areas, within that subcategory, nearly half had rents that were still below the long-fixing tax credit restriction. And 9% had rents that still were within 105% of long housing tax credit rents. Now, the one exception to the report's primary finding applies to properties in favorable market locations that are also owned by for-profit companies. 
those properties were much more likely to have transitioned to market rate rents. The report cautions that more than a million affordable housing units, however, could be moved to market rates by the year 2020, that being the period after the 30-year affordability restrictions begin to expire. To avoid the potential loss of affordable housing units, the researchers suggest that housing finance agencies work to preserve those units that are most in danger of being converted to market rate, as well as preserve those units that provide supportive housing. The authors also say that additional research is essential for making policy decisions about the future of the older low-income housing tax credit housing stock. They suggest one important area is research that focuses on the role of low-income housing tax credits in creating mixed-income housing, both of making housing available to low-income renters in locations where it would otherwise not be, and by creating housing that has a mixed-income character within the development itself. They also recommend research to better understand how to use low-income housing tax credits for special needs housing and how to best link units with supportive services. You can read the entire report online at www.taxcredithousing.com, and you can also read my blog post on the topic of a nice chart about the makeup of the units within the study. New market tax credit news. As most listeners are well aware, the application deadline is two weeks away. Applications for the 2012 new market tax credit round are due September 12th, and they'll only be accepted electronically through the My CDFI Fund system. Applicants are also advised that the CDFI Fund will stop taking questions about the current application round after 5 p.m. on September 10th. In addition, to be eligible in this round, prior allocatees will need to have met their qualified equity investment issuance thresholds by Wednesday, October 31st. Now, if you have questions about applying for an allocation of new market tax credits, I encourage you to contact Novagrad and Company. Simply send an email to cpas at novaco.com, and we'll put you in touch with one of our firm's many new market tax credit experts. Also, on September 12th, the deadline for applying for new market tax credits, the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund, the CDFI Fund's Community Development Advisory Board is going to hold its next meeting. The CDFI Fund's Advisory Board advises the director of the CDFI Fund on policies regarding the CDFI Fund's activities. The meeting will be held via conference call from 2 to 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Participation in the meeting is limited to advisory board members, Department of the Treasury staff, and invited guests. In addition, 50 members of the public may also listen in on the call. Those who are interested in logging into the call must submit a notification of intent to the advisory board via email. The email address is advisoryboard at cdfi.trez.gov. The advisory board will send confirmations and login information to the first 50 individuals who submit notifications of intent. The advisory board is also accepting written comments. They must be submitted, the written comments must be submitted to the Office of Legislative and External Affairs by 5 p.m. Eastern Time on September 4th. As you might have suspected, the Novogratic New Market Test Working Group does plan to call into the meeting, and it may also submit written comments. And if you have questions about the working group, please give my partner Brad Elphick a call in our Atlanta office. Turning to the OCC, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency last week published the latest edition of the Community Developments Investments Electronic Newsletter. 
This edition is titled Bank Financing of Healthy Food Initiatives, and it features the new market tax credit quite heavily. The newsletter describes how national banks and federal savings associations can finance projects that bring fresh produce and healthy food choices to underserved low-income neighborhoods. In a statement about the newsletter, Comptroller of the Currency Thomas J. Curry said, and here I quote, Through the use of new markets tax credits, the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund, and other programs, we can expand access to grocery stores and farmers markets, spur community development and job growth, and create hubs of activity, particularly in low-income, urban, rural, and minority communities. Close quote. In addition to the new market tax credit, and other CDFI fund programs, this newsletter looks at how banks can take advantage of other public-private partnerships through programs sponsored by the Departments of Treasury, Agriculture, and Health and Human Services. The OCC notes that many of the initiatives using these programs may be eligible for positive consideration in a bank's Community Reinvestment Act or CRA examination. The newsletter includes a number of articles including one story about a new market tax credit transaction that brought food jobs to Newark, New Jersey. Coincidentally, that transaction is also to be featured in the September issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. So if you're already a subscriber, you'll be getting it soon. If you're not a subscriber, you can receive a sample copy by sending an email to products at novoco.com. And to read the OCC's Community Development Investments newsletter, simply go to www.occ.trez.gov. In renewable energy tax credit news, approximately 37,400 jobs will be created if all of the renewable energy projects that were announced in the second quarter of 2012 come to fruition. This, according to a report from Environmental Entrepreneurs. The report is called What Clean Energy Jobs? And it was created based on project announcement compiled from more than 70 companies, cities, and organizations from April through June of this year. The projects were announced in 30 states, many of which had at least two project announcements. Nearly one-third of those announcements came from Midwestern states, including Michigan, Ohio, and Illinois. However, the report also said that the wind sector has seen a nationwide slowdown in recent months because of the uncertainty surrounding the extension of the wind energy production tax credit. As listeners have likely heard, major wind employers like Festus, Gamisa and NRG have announced already layoffs or delayed project plans as the December 31st expiration date for the production tax credit approaches. In fact, compared to Environmental Entrepreneur's report from the first quarter, the second quarter job productions were down more than 18%. A copy of the second quarter report can be found online at www.energytaxcredits.com. Turning to the DOE, The Department of Energy is holding a two-day workshop next month to exchange information on hydropower's ability to integrate fluctuating renewable energy resources into the nation's grid. In a Federal Register notice last week, the Department of Energy said that certain types of renewable energy sources can stress power systems because their electricity generation varies with fluctuations in their fuel source. For example, wind turbines have inconsistent wind speed, and solar panels are affected by sunlight availability. As such, DOE's Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy said said that it's using the workshop to obtain technical advice 
on the use of existing hydropower resources and advanced pump storage technologies. DOE reports that hydropower already provides most of the power's grid's flexibility. However, the demands on this flexibility are growing as more renewables like wind and solar produce varying amounts of power. The hydropower fleet is also losing efficiency as it ages, and competing water uses such as irrigation and domestic supply take priority over energy generation. The notice says one possible solution is advanced pump storage technology, but, that, but development of that technology has been stalled in the U.S. The DOE says the workshop is designed to bring together a set of stakeholders to identify and address all aspects of the barriers to using hydropower and pump storage to integrate renewables. When's the workshop going to be held? Well, it'll be held on September 18th and 19th in Portland, Oregon. Participation is open to the public, and it may include policymakers, equipment manufacturers, hydropower owner-operators, and solar and wind energy experts. Space at the workshop is limited, however, and attendees are required to RSVP by September 4th. If you want more information and details about how to register, go to the August 21st Federal Register. In historic tax credit news, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit yesterday filed an opinion overturning, yes, overturning, the U.S. Tax Court's January 3, 2011 decision on historic Boardwalk Hall versus Commissioner. The court found that the project's historic tax credit equity investor, Pitney Bowes, was not was not a bona fide partner in Historic Boardwalk Hall partnership because it lacked a meaningful stake in the project's success or failure. Basically, there wasn't a partnership, there wasn't a joint undertaking, turning to the Culbertson case. The court then remanded the case for further proceedings by the tax court consistent with its opinion that Pitney Bowes was not a partner. Right now, this case is being closely read by the tax credit community, and it is certain to impact the structure of future historic tax credit transactions. And the case may also affect the design of new market tax credit, long compensating tax credit, and renewable energy tax credit transactions. Now, if you'd like to learn more about the implications that the court's decision may have for the historic tax credit industry, Please join us at our National Historic Tax Credit Conference next week, September 6th and 7th in Louisville, Kentucky. This case, there's a panel on it, and there'll be lots of discussion during the course of the conference about the implications of the case. If you want to register for the conference, simply go online to www.novaco.com backslash events or call 415-356-7970. Furthermore, as we delve more into the case and get a better understanding of the implications of the case, we'll also be hosting a webinar on Friday, September 14th. More details to follow. And lastly, if you have thoughts about the case and the implications of the case, please send me an email to michael.novagradic at novaco.com. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. And I do also hope to see you in Louisville, Kentucky next week at our historic Tax Credit Conference. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.
This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogradic and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novogradic.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogradic Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogradic and Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novogo.com.